excuse me, to Luke chapter 1, verses uh, 67 through 69. Luke chapter 1, 67 through 69. Let's remain standing for the reading of God's word. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. You may be seated, maybe be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. We are this morning taking a four-week or so um, stop in our study of First Peter, and we're going to be looking uh, for the next, between now and Christmas Eve, we'll conclude this uh, series at Christmas Eve, and we'll uh, talk a little bit about it Christmas morning, but uh, the last message on this um, series will be Christmas Eve um, service. So please join us for the next four weeks as we journey through Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 69. We are celebrating Advent. You know, the word Advent means this. It means the arrival of or the coming of. That, that there's this anticipation for us. That we're in the season of Advent. And what we're anticipating, what we're getting ready for, and what we're getting ready to celebrate is Christmas. Christmas morning. It's a reminder of us. We come and we celebrate Christmas as a reminder that God sent His Son Jesus... Uh, to become for us what we could not do for ourselves, a propitiation for our sins. That's the reason that Jesus came to this planet. And so we're in this season of Advent. In the church calendar, it started um, two days uh, before the first of the month of December, and it'll run all the way to Christmas morning. And so um, we will get you some reading material through this season of Advent. How do we prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus as a reminder that Jesus has done for us. And so this morning's message is the Advent. Salvation rised for us. And so this morning we're going to look at how salvation was given to us through Christ Jesus and what that means for us and how that was accomplished. We'll look for the next four weeks at what some scholars called the Benedictus of Zechariah. And Zechariah was a prophet. And so the Benedictus, what that word means or what this is about is Zechariah is praising God. We see that in the very first words that he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And so here Zechariah has heard from the Lord and he's giving praise back to God. And so we're going to look at this morning on the idea that Advent, the Advent of Christ reminds us that God is worthy to be praised. And so as we come into this morning, we, we want to walk away with God is worthy to be praised because of a few things that we see in this passage. Just as a way of recapping the Old Testament, here's what's happened in the Old Testament. Here is where we're at. We're starting the New Testament. 
And we'll go to um, Malachi here in a moment. Uh, But God had been silent with God's people for close to 400 years. Can you imagine that? That the, the people of God had heard from God over and over and over. And that God had been with them in their midst. And then for about 400 years, God goes silent. And so that's where we're at in this moment. I know we can read the the last verse of Malachi, flip the page and get to Matthew and think, man, that happened pretty quickly. No, it took 400 years for that page to flip, if you will. And so here, all of a sudden, we have God's people. What are they doing? They're in Advent, waiting with anticipation to hear from God again. 400 years. I can't even wrap my mind around how long that was. That's four generations of people, five generations of families that had not heard from the Lord. And the people of God sat with great anticipation to hear from God again. And here's what they were anticipating. Let's flip over to Malachi verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 2. This is kind of the last promise that God had given to God's people. He says this to him in verse 2. Talking to his people. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from from the stall. So that's the last thing they heard from the Lord. That, That God would send somebody to deliver them. And in that deliverance, they would have freedom. And so for 400 years, they wait with great anticipation for their freedom. And this is where we pick up here in Luke chapter 1. If you know or read Luke at all or the first Gospels at all, the first couple chapters of the Gospels at all, it's now God is no longer silent. 400 years pass and now God begins to talk. And what does he do? He goes to two ladies first through the angel Gabriel, and says to these two ladies, these two cousins, Elizabeth and Mary, he goes to Elizabeth and Mary and says, hey, you're going to have a child, Mary, and his name's going to be Emmanuel. What we just saying? God with us. And Elizabeth, you're going to have a son, and it's going to be the prophet that I told about 400 years before. And he's going to prepare the way for Jesus. And that's the next thing, after 400 years, that the people of God had heard. Let's turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 5. I'll kind of story tell what happens. This is the uh, foretelling of John the Baptist. And Zechariah, his dad, was a priest. And Zechariah had gone to the temple to do his duties. And in the temple is where God speaks directly to Zechariah, and we can read that verse and think, well, here's this man that went to, the, went to the temple to do his duties. No, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. There was 18,000 priests at that time. So for him, it wasn't just like he went to church every single week to do his duties. No, this was a once-in-a-lifetime moment for Zechariah to go into the Holy of Holies to do what only that priest could do, and that was to present a sacrifice to God for the redemption of his people, for the sins of his people. And in that act, God sent his angel, Gabriel, and said to uh, Zechariah, hey, you will have a son. 
And in doing so, your son will prepare the way for my son, Jesus Christ, as a redemptive piece of history so that all of my people will have an opportunity to see and to, to respond to the good news. And what happens to Zechariah? He's like, nah, I don't know about all that. That's what happens in the temple. He's talking to the angel, and I don't know how he said it. I know how I would have said it. He said to the angel, that, that's impossible. Look how old I am. And then he throws his wife under the bus. Look how old she is. Bad idea, man. You don't, you don't want to do that. And in doing so, as soon as he said, hey, I don't believe you. I don't trust you. There's no way that can happen. What does God do? He shuts his mouth. And so for nine months, Zechariah can't say a word. He can't say one word. And he's seeing all that God had promised in that temple to him. That, that Mary would have a child and that his wife would have a child. And he can say nothing out loud about it to anybody. Until this part here is Benedictus. And so here's this waiting that not only Zechariah was waiting, but the people were waiting. God's people had been waiting for 400 years. I wonder for us, what are we waiting for today? Do we come today and do we have this expectation and are we waiting the way Zechariah was, the way the people of God were? Here's what one writer says. I don't know who the author is. No one quoted him, but this is what uh, he said, or she said, whoever it may be. It says, sometimes it seems as though we spend our lives waiting, daydreaming about an upcoming vacation, worrying over a medical test, preparing for the birth of a grandchild, or days are filled, our days are filled with anticipation and anxiety over the fut- what the future holds. Maybe that's you this morning. Or you come and you have that anxiety, you have that anticipation, and you're waiting for something. And the author goes on and says this, for us, the believer this morning, as Christians, we too spend our lives waiting. Catch this. But we are, not wait, well, we are waiting for some, something much bigger than a trip, bigger than retirement or a wedding. We are waiting for the return of Jesus in glory. And this is the season we're in. Advent heightens this sense of waiting because it marks not only our anticipation of Jesus' final coming, but it also reminds us of our remembrance of his arrival into the world more than 2,000 years ago. And so my question is, what are we waiting for this morning? Are we here this morning in our anxiety waiting for whatever is coming down the road this week or next week or the following week or in two years? Or do we have this waiting within this anticipation that, wait, the king of glory is returning. And we know that because of Christmas. And you may think, how do we know that because of Christmas? Because at Christmas, all the fulfillment of the Old Testament happened and continues to happen. And the great promise is he'll return again. And so for us this morning, what are we waiting for? What do we wait for this morning? And I want to talk to us about how we wait this morning. Because it's in our waiting that will dictate everything about our lives. Because for you and for me, we will wait. We are waiting. For me to say, hey, do not wait, that's impossible. 
It's what do we do in our waiting? It's what do we do as we wait for the Lord's return? And how do we do that? Three things. But before we get there, I just want to say this about this passage. We can read this praise to God and we can read this prophecy and think it's about John the Baptist. This prayer and this promise and this praise that Zechariah had had nothing to do with his own son. He, he only mentions his son twice in this whole passage that Tracy just read to us. Twice. And in doing so, it wasn't even about him mentioning his son. It was about his son preparing for Jesus Christ. This whole passage, this whole blessing, this whole song has to do with Jesus Christ. And in doing so, it's, it's amazing how Zechariah shows the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Three covenants of the Old Testament. The first covenant that he shows us and that the promise is fulfilled is where he says about David in the house of David. He says the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is being fulfilled by the advent of Jesus Christ. The Davidic covenant was the, what we would call the universal covenant. That God died for all people. So it's this universal covenant that's being fulfilled because of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on and several verses later, he says, not only is the universal covenant fulfilled in the coming of Christ, but the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. That's the national covenant. For God's people, for God's chosen people, Christ would come for his chosen people. And then the last is the new covenant, which has everything to do with you and I. It's the personal covenant. And so when we read this, he is showing to us, it's not just the, the universal covenant, it's not just the national covenant, but it's your covenant and my covenant, the new covenant, the personal covenant that Christ has made with me, the believer, and with you, the believer. And so in doing so this morning, we want to look at one thing, is this, and we're going to look at it in three ways. The advent of Christ reminds us that God is worthy to be praised, Amen. Is he not? If God sent his son Jesus to redeem us of our sins, then he's worthy to be praised. And so how do we wait? And how do we praise God in our waiting? We'll look at three words from this text. The first thing is this. God is worthy to be praised because he visited us. That is a huge word in the text. We see it twice. We see it in the very first word. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel for what he visited us and redeemed his people. We see it again in the, the, last, the second to last verse. Because of his tender mercy, the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun rises shall what? Visit us on high. Now we hear that word visit. And we may have this thought and the, the thought that comes to mind. Man, I'm going to go over and visit that person. I'm going to go over and have time with that person. I'm going to go visit them and watch a football game with that person. I'm going to go have fellowship with that person. That is not the word that is being used here by Zechariah. God did not come and sit with us to watch a football game. God did not come and just have fellowship with us. The word visited in the Greek means this. It means this. To look upon or after. To inspect. To examine with the eyes. And here, catch this. This is what the word means. In order to see how he, you and me, is on the visit. But it has everything to do with our poor and our afflicted souls. 
You see, it's more the idea, not that I go and visit someone at their house, or not that I go and visit someone and hang out with them and go have coffee with them, but it's though I go do visitation at a hospital. It's that I go and look after and care for someone because they're sick and afflicted. And so Jesus seeing us and God seeing us said we've got to go visit our people because they're poor and they're afflicted. You see, God did not want to come hang out with us. God wanted to come and be with us in our affliction. So because of that, because he looks upon us in heaven, he looked at us and saw us in our neediness and in our affliction and said to Jesus, Jesus, you've got to go visit them and be with them. And I wonder for us, do we think that Jesus came and visited with us over a cup of Starbucks coffee? See, God is not our friend, though he is. God is not our homeboy. He will never be that. God is not this just laissez-faire kind of person. He looked at you and me and said, I've got to get there because of their afflicted souls. And so because of that, God can be worshipped because of our affliction. And that's way more to do with our spiritual affliction than it, even, than it does our emotional affliction or our health affliction. It has to do everything with our heart affliction. That we are poor and needy and in desperate need of someone to visit us. We look at this word throughout all of God's word. God is worthy to be praised because he's seen our trouble and knows our trouble and sits with us in our trouble. We see this in uh, the word visit over and over in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Just a few places. In Genesis chapter 21, verse 1, remember that Sarah was in her distress and she longed to have a child. And what does it say? In Genesis 20, 21, it says, the Lord visited Sarah. God visited Sarah in her distress and promised her a son Isaac. We see it again in Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, that Joseph was at the very end of his life. And, and he says, Joseph is talking to his brothers who his brothers had put him through uh, just torment after torment after torment. And then he says to his brothers this. He says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and what bring you up out of this land. They were in slavery. They were in bondage. And he said, God is going to visit you in your affliction. He says it again in verse 25. God will surely visit you. It happened again in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Remember that uh, Hannah was old in her age. And she had longed for a child. And in doing so, it says she began to cry out to God in her affliction. And it says in verse 21 of chapter 2, Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and promised Hannah Samuel. Again, it talks about it in Exodus. The Exodus is the story of God redeeming his people out of slavery. And it says this in chapter 4, verse 31. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had what visited the people and he had what seen their affliction, what was their response? They bowed their heads and they worshiped God. God continues to visit us. And so for us, as you sit in your affliction, whatever it is, 
the promise is that God continues to visit you. It's not that he visited you at the moment of your salvation, though he did. It's this idea that God, through his son Jesus, continues to visit us. God is just as much present today in his visitation with you today as he was at the moment of your salvation. How do we know that? We know that because of Psalm chapter 121. I'll read the whole psalm if you'd like to turn there. Psalm chapter 121 verses 1 through 8. It shows us how God's deep care for us is. He says this, the psalmist, David. If you want to know a man that knew affliction, it was David. David knew affliction. But he says this, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth and he will not let my feet be moved. He who keeps me will not slumber. Behold, he, God, who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is my keeper. The Lord is my, sh- my shade on my right hand. The, shun- the sun shall not strike me by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you. You're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. We know that God is worthy to be praised because he continues to visit us. The same way that he visited Zechariah, the same way that he visited uh, uh, Mary, he visits us. He visits you in this moment, whatever your affliction is, to do for you what you could not do for yourself. You see, in God's visitation to me, in God's visitation to you, it reveals one thing, that we cannot take care of ourselves. We need a caretaker. We need a caregiver. We need the great healer. We need the great physician. And that's all what God did through his son Jesus in coming to this earth. Here's what Diedrich Bonhoeffer, Diedrich Bonhoeffer was an amazing godly man. If you've never read uh, the biography of Dieter Bonhoeffer, I encourage you to do it. Uh, a man named Eric Metaxas wrote a, it, it'll take, it will take me about two and a half years to get through it. It seems like it's a 2,000 page book, but it's, it's not. Uh, but it's, he's a godly man. And he wrote this about what we're talking about, about the Christmas message. He says this, just when everything was bearing down on us, to such an extent, we could scarcely withstand it. The Christmas message comes and tells us that all of our ideas are wrong and that what we take to be evil and dark is really good and light because it comes from God. Our eyes are at fault that it is at all. God is in the manger, wealth and poverty, light and darkness, succumb in abandonment. All evil can behold us. Whatever man shall do to us, they cannot but serve the God who is secretly revealed as love and rules the world in our lives. That is what it means for God to be with us, to God to come and visit us, that he rules the world and our lives, that there is a God who is still in control. For the first thing is this, God is worthy to be praised because he visited us. The second thing is this, God is worthy to be praised 
because he redeems us. You see, it'd be one thing just to come and visit us. See, we need the visitation first. Because without the visitation, there will never be redemption. And so God sits with us. But in sitting with us and looking after us and caring for us and saying to us, you can't do it yourself. He then says this in verse 68. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he had visited us and redeemed his people. We have a God that redeems us. And in our waiting, we can be reminded that he's worthy to be praised because he has redeemed us. The, the word redeem means this, to purchase back. That we had to be bought back. That it has this whole idea of slavery, that the, the slaves had to be, be redeemed or be bought back. The way to be free was to be redeemed. The only way for them ever to be free was to, for someone to buy them back, to purchase them. And so for us, and for these people, I wonder for them, as they hear the word to be redeemed. See, they didn't have the, the, the concept of being redeemed for their salvation. They had the concept to be redeemed and set free from, from Rome. See, when they heard this, they, their idea was, hey, we're under complete bondage from the Roman Empire. And even for these 400 years of their waiting, their hoping was that they would be redeemed from, from, from Rome. And I wonder for me, and I wonder for you, I wonder for us as a church, what is our concept of redemption? What are we thinking we're being redeemed from? I, I know theologically we'd say from our sins, but what would our heart really reveal? Are we hoping to be redeemed from our job? Are we hoping to be redeemed from sickness? Are we hoping to be redeemed from you fill in the blank? Is our anticipation and our waiting the same way as it was with the Israelites, with the Jewish people, that their concept of redemption was more so to be redeemed out of bondage from the Roman Empire, more so than the bondage of their sin that they were in? And for me, I wonder from my own heart, like I know theologically what it means, but my theology, if it does not captivate my heart, then it's only about the brain. The brain does not save, it's the heart, and it's the reformation of the heart that saves me and you. Here's what we do know. We need redemption. Every one of us in this room need redemption. Believer, unbeliever, we all know we need redemption. Here's what Jesus said about himself and about us. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The same way that the Israelites were enslaved to bondage to the Egyptians. The same way that throughout history when slaves were bought, they were in bondage. What Jesus just said is all of us, when we practice sin, are slaves to sin. So we are all slaves. So because we're all slaves in the room, we all need redemption in the room. Do we believe that this morning? See, and no one in this room can say, well, I don't practice sin. No, uh, another place in Romans is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if all have sinned, then all have been subject to slavery to sin. It doesn't matter if it's been a cookie from a cookie jar or if it's been murder. Sin is sin. Sin is our separation from God. 
And when we sin, we practice sin. And when sin begins to take root in our lives, it says to us, which sin without confession will lead to death. And so for all of us in this room, we've practiced sin and we're slaves to sin. And that's why we need redemption. We need to be bought back. Because without Christ, you will continue to be a slave to sin. Here's what Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says. And here's what Jesus came to do. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, to be served, but to serve. To what? To give his life as a ransom or a redemption or to redeem many. The whole reason that Jesus came was for our redemption. Because we're in bondage to slavery. Here's what we know. Because Christ coming as a baby and living his life and dying he died the death on a cross for one reason and one reason only to give glory to god but to release us from our sin to bring us freedom from our sin here's what Romans says and having been well, i'll get there there in a second my, my great fear for us as believers is this we still live as slaves to sin Now, if you're an unbeliever, you will continue to live as a slave to sin. But my great fear for us, me, you, if you know and trust Christ, is that you still live in bondage of sin. If that's true for you, then you don't believe in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Here's how we know that. Romans says to us, and and having been what? Set free from sin. Having been set free from sin, we become slaves to righteousness. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us, as it is written, the curse that is anyone who hangs on the tree. And Galatians 5.1 says this, for what freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to the yoke of slavery again. And my fear is this, as believers, we still live enslaved to sin as a great tragedy for us believers we have been set free because of jesus coming on as a baby living his life for us the cross set us free but how do we continue to live in bondage to sin if christ has set us free i believe it's because we don't rejoice in the fact that we've been set free. That we don't wake up every day reminding ourselves of the gospel. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is in your life as a believer and my as a believer. Therefore, I'm set free from the, from the penalty of sin. And I'm set free from the, the power of sin. Do we realize that, that the power of sin no longer can have dominion on your life if you're a believer in Jesus Christ because of his finished work on the cross. And so for us in this Advent season, we want to be reminded and reminding ourselves that God is worthy to be praised because of our redemption. And so for us today, when we come and we sing songs and we hear God's message, are we in the moment, in these moments, giving God all the worship and all the worth that he is for our redemption 
God is worthy to be praised because he visits us and he redeems us. Here's the greatest tragedy to me is that we don't know this or aren't reminded of this. We are set free from our sin. This gift of freedom, let me say it again and again, this gift of freedom that you and I have costs you nothing, but it costs Christ everything. Let me say that one more time. The gift of freedom, the gift of your redemption costs you nothing, but it costs God everything and it costs Jesus everything. Moms, Dads, think of that moment, that joyous moment in the hospital or wherever you gave birth for the first time or second time or third time. To me, we've had two. It never gets old. I want more. Jenny doesn't. But I can look back when Tennyson was born. I look back when Cedar was born and the joy that fell over me. And yet in that moment, when God gave his son to be born to Mary, his image was that son dying on a cross for you and me. You you think of that moment when you're holding your child in your arms for the first time. You have no thought of, man, I'm going to give this kid up to be a sacrifice for people that I don't care about. But God, when he sent Jesus to Mary, God knew that his son would die on a cross, a criminal death, to set you and me free. It cost us nothing. It cost God everything. I don't say that to shame us. I say that as a reminder of what this freedom that we have costs somebody. Therefore, because it costs somebody something, we worship the one it costs. We worship God and say, God, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus for me. And I pray that never gets old to us as believers. I pray that when we wake up in the morning and we experience the freedom that we have in our salvation, that we would worship God. We would be reminded of this Christmas season, this Advent season, that God is worthy to be worshipped. The last thing that we see as we close is this. God is worthy to be worshipped because He has secured us or He secures us. Let's read in uh, verse 30, uh, 68. It says this. We'll do 68 and 69. Sorry, it's in verse 69. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for He has visited us and redeemed His people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. Now you and I, we may hear that word horn, and we may think of a trumpet. That's not what this word means. That's not what this phrase means. The horn of salvation has nothing to do with with blowing a, a, a trumpet. It has everything to do. The horn of salvation is a deadly instrument. My favorite team is the Texas Longhorns. They have some deadly horns, long horns do. And they will gorge people for, for protection. Like if you were to go and attack an animal with horns, it's going to use its horns, what, to protect itself. And God is saying, 
He is our horn of protection. He is our horn of our salvation. He protects our salvation. That if anyone are going to come against us to rob us of our salvation, his protection is around us and secures our salvation. You cannot lose your salvation, not because of you, but because of the protection of the Lord. And we're reminded of that because of Christmas. He is the horn. He is our security. He is our protector. God protects our salvation. John 10 28 says this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so for us this morning as we close, God is worthy to be worshipped because first, he visits us and continues to visit us. Second, he's redeemed us. And last, he has secured our salvation. And because he visits, he redeems and he secures we give him all the honor and all the glory. And we're reminded of that through this Christmas holiday. Let us pray.